Levi, last week, I think... I don't think you had this, right? Last week you just talked about it? The Bible? Yeah. Yeah. The, the Bible? <laughs> the giant, thick ESV study Bible. But if... I just brought it, like, if anybody wants to look through this, this is the Bible that Levi mentioned, which is the ESV study Bible. And the reason why it's so big is because it's not just the Bible. <laughs> There's a ton of notes and articles that he made reference to. Yeah. Um, and we always say, you know, just to be careful with these, because obviously it's other people. Um, and so we always want to be careful with a study Bible, because um, it's man's comments on God's word, just like you want to be careful with us. <laughs> because, because we are not infallible like the Bible is, obviously. Uh, but anyway, if um, people want to pass this around or look at it, I will set it here. And people can peek if you're curious. Very helpful one. Other one I just wanted to mention, this is a little tiny book that I will probably allude to a little bit tonight. This is a little tiny book called The Gospel of the Kingdom. So it's pretty non-intimidating, but it is by a New Testament scholar by the name of George Eldon Ladd. And uh, he, he is a very well-noted um, kingdom scholar on the New Testament. He died back in the 80s? Yeah, 80s. Um, Fuller Theological Seminary had pretty big influence on people like John Piper and also people in the Vineyard Movement as well, John Wimber and others. So kind of some different streams there. But this was a really helpful book that I read years ago about just the nature of, of the kingdom of God. So it's thin. But the gospel of the kingdom. And then N.T. Wright has a book, which I haven't read all of this, but I flipped through a lot of it. Very helpful book um, on... Jesus, Jesus and the victory of God, probably one of the most um, prolific and noted scholars on Jesus and also on Paul. Though as some say, he's better with Jesus than Paul. Um, But anyway. So that's the advertisements. Let's, uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We're just thankful to be here and to, to get them to look at your word. And I just ask that you would bless it, just continue to bless this class um, for us who are studying for it and teaching it, help, help us. And for those that are listening, we just want to be faithful. We want to be students, but not just students in our heads, but that you would change our hearts through your word. So would you just help us tonight in Jesus' name, amen. I think I might have mentioned it before, but I'm an amateur. Um, I don't have any kind of a master's or doctorate or anything like that. So when I'm up here talking, keep that in mind. Um, I am leaning on other people that I've learned from through books. And so um, I can definitely be wrong um, on maybe some of these dates and ideas, but just want to make that, make that clear to uh, begin with. Yeah, what? <laughs> yes, that's a disclaimer. So for the first half of the class, well, I think what will probably happen is I'll be interweaving um, between uh, the New Testament genre and cultural background. That little document that I gave you, there are two different ones there. One's kind of going to be an overview on uh, the class, and the other one um, is a link to a blog post that I did many years ago that I thought would be helpful where I summarized some of um, one scholar's book on 
Yes, uh, on, on um, what it would have been like him to live in uh, the New Testament time. So that's what those two documents are. And let me get you one. Uh, do we have a couple more? Or? No? Maybe not. That's okay. I think I ran out. I think I made 12 or something. I probably should have made more. What was that? Oh, okay, great. Thank you. So we're going to be looking at uh, the different genres of uh, the New Testament and so we're going to be discussing the Bible in a very literary way. We're going to be looking at it as a collection of documents written by various human authors that have particular audiences in mind and that are shaped by specific cultural backgrounds. So that's the way that um, we're looking at uh, the New Testament. It's different than preaching. Um, and this is more, obviously, teaching and trying to give us a sense of what genres are in the New Testament and what the cultural background was. But even as we do that, like always, we never want to forget that this is the word of God. And so we are never over the top of it, but we are always sitting under it. And one of the dangers when you start to view the scriptures in a literary way, in a genre way, or a cultural way, is you start to feel like you're the one manipulating of the circumstances, but we are always under the word of God. Um, we don't become Christians by becoming you know, really good readers, by becoming literary scholars. We become Christians by God's grace. And that always needs to be front and center. And so we must remember that as we look at genre and cultural background. And the fact that we read the word of God in the presence of God. And so, um, as we do these things, like look at genre, look at background, we need to remember we are in the presence of God as we begin to read and speak his word, even as we're engaging with those backgrounds. And so, engaging with um, the genres and the cultural background are very helpful to help us understand what God's word means. But... The power of God's word is never hinged to that. It's never hinged to understanding. Oh, I know what the genre is. I know what the background is. Therefore, I understand it. No, God's power can break through um, anyone who does not know that. Any unreached people group that has no knowledge of Greco-Roman culture or no knowledge of distinguishing between particular literary devices can be changed by the word of God in an instant. And so again, let's always keep that front and center. That big long quote that I gave you there um, by one theologian. He said, Contemplation of the divine word does not involve the transcendence of natural acts, but their regeneration and redirection to their proper end. We must be changed. And the required change is not simply an extension of skills already possessed, but an entire conversion of interpretive reason so that it is made capable of hearing the words of a book. We may speak of reading Scripture with faith. To read with faith is to read Holy Scripture as those who acknowledge that they are within the reality of saving grace and who know that an end has been made of mistrust, fear, and evil detachment. For such readers, interpreting Scripture is a literary and historical enterprise which is at the same time a mode of living in the presence of God. The reader is not alone in that presence, but in the company of teachers, the prophets and apostles who speak, and from, who speak of and from God and through whom God makes his appeal. This last paragraph is great. The category of text and more specific categories of literary genre are of relatively low-level importance, necessary but by no means sufficient. 
Though they may serve to identify features of written discourse and so to direct reading strategies, they ought not to be deployed in a way that forestalls exegetical surprise or deadens spiritual astonishment. So, we're going to look at low-level importance things tonight, but I pray that they don't deaden our spiritual astonishment at the fact that God has spoken to us. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is the one who opens our eyes. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-12. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 12. And I, this is Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Spirit is the one who opens our hearts and our minds. For interpreting scriptures, the the grace of the Spirit precedes, comes before genre and background. But why does genre matter? Why does this matter for us? Webster's defined genre as a category of artistic, musical, or literary composition characterized by a particular style, form, or content. So genre is an art form. It's an art form. We talk of musical genres, movie genres, book genres, literary genres. There's main categories. There's sub-categories. You have something like rock music, but then you have alternative rock or indie rock. You know, or all those different kinds of subgenres under the main one. You have movies, adventure, horror, suspense. If you're a nerd like me, you have board games and all kinds of different board game genres. And if you go into a library, how is it arranged? It's usually arranged according to genre. There's self-help over here, and then there's a fantasy section and a biography section. And so the Bible is, is a one book organized in two testaments, that are filled with many books in different kinds of genres. So it's almost like walking into a library. When we open our Bibles, we're getting history books, we're getting poetry books, apocalyptic books, that's a popular genre right now, if you turn on your television, Um, prophetic books, wisdom books, and narrative books. And then, even within those books, they might use another device, like a narrative may have some poems in it. Um, so they, they can use um, devices within a main heading. So we have the kind of poetry in the Psalms. 
that may contain poems of joyful praise. Then we have certain poems that are more lament and organized around lamenting and grieving. We even have poetry in the Song of Solomon that's of an erotic nature. You even have that in our Bible. Additionally, there is the last book of the Bible that contains several different genre types all in one in the book of Revelation, which we might talk about some tonight. We'll see how it goes. One of the reasons uh, this is important for us to know is that it tells us something about God. The fact that God communicates to us in a diverse amount of ways. He's a God who speaks in several different ways. That he can't be contained to one form of communication. So what it does is it reminds us of how big of a God we have. And it reminds us of the type of God we have. He's not just giving us propositions or doctrinal statements, not just giving us lists and legal requirements. He's giving us rhyme. He's giving us mystery. He's giving us beauty and art. And so he communicates himself in different ways to reveal that while he can be known, he can't be captured. God can't be mastered by one thing. He is personal. And so like a person, he communicates in a multiple ways and forms. We have to be careful um, in emphasizing the importance of understanding the different types of genres and breaking up these books um, because we don't want to discard the fact that we have one book. We have particular genres, we have particular books, but we have one story. That's what the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation. One big sweeping story. So we must not commit what one scholar called hermeneutical polytheism in treating the biblical genres so distinctly that it makes for contradictions that it sets one type of a book against another type of a book. The Bible's telling one story from beginning to end. St. Augustine said this with the Old and New Testaments. He said, The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. So if the Bible is a composition of several different genres, all of them complement one another to, to produce a unified symphony. Just like a symphony has a bunch of different musical instruments. One song is being played. The Trinity reminds us of, of this. We know there's one God. We also know that God reveals himself as one God in three persons. We can talk about the Son distinctly from the Father. We can talk about the Spirit distinctly from the Son. But we can never separate them. The fact that they are one essence and so we can speak of a unity in a diversity. And so there's almost like a Trinitarian understanding of genre. That we can talk about how poetry comes as a revelatory genre. And narrative comes as a relatively, as a revelatory genre. But all of it is one unified voice speaking to us from the mouth of, of God. And so we don't want to laser in on just the poetry books without the narratives. Nor would we want to ever divvy up the son from the father um, even though we can discuss each of them particularly. So, let's look at them. Um, one other reason of why genre matters is if I read the Harry Potter novels as non-fiction, um, that's going to be a problem because they're fiction. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to have a mistaken view of the world if I read Harry Potter as as real. In the same way, if I read a book on Nazi Germany by a historian and treat it as fiction, I'm going to have a really jacked up view of what history is. If I write a poem to Kate 
and she interprets it literally. She's going to come up with some really weird ideas. <laughs> Very weird ideas. If she writes me a letter and tells me about maybe specific goals or dreams that she has, and I treat it as nah, maybe a metaphor, maybe an artsy way of communicating, again, that is going to be a problem. I'm going to misunderstand her. So we must interpret the books of the Bible according to the genre that they are written in or we're going to have crazy ideas about what the Bible is saying. We treat poems as poems. We treat narratives as narratives. We treat letters as letters. We treat apocalyptic and prophetic books as apocalyptic and prophetic. And if we switch it, we're not going to understand what the author is saying to us. The author is trying to communicate in a certain way and tell us it based on the way in which he is communicating. So when we are seeking to understand the genre of what the author wrote us, we are really seeking to honor and understand the author. That's probably one of the most important things. We want to understand genre because we want to understand what's that person saying. Just like when we get a letter from somebody. We want to honor what they're saying to us. We want to understand it according to the way that, in which they are communicating to us. Um, we must treat the various genres of Scripture by the rules of that particular genre. This has been compared to treating the various forms of literature as sports. The fact that you can't play all sports the same way. Pretty obvious, right? You have to do the, the rule that the particular sport is telling you in order to actually play it. Um, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. Um, that's, a, that's a book on hermeneutics. And this is what they said about that. Some have compared interpreting types of literature such as narrative, epistle, or apocalyptic to playing various games such as baseball, basketball, or soccer. In each case, if you want to play the game, you must first acquaint yourself with the rules. Conversely, if you don't know the rules of a given game, you will most likely be lost and be unable to follow a game, much less participate in it. Then it goes on to say that we must learn the rules that guide the interpretation of that particular Biblical genre. So, one of the biggest things to take away is we do not take the Bible literally, necessarily. We do not take the Bible literally, necessarily. We believe that the Bible is truthful, completely. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's without error. It's speaking the truth to us. But we do not interpret all that is in it literalistically. Kevin Van Hooser, a theologian and professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, put it this way. We must therefore say that the literal sense of Scripture is its literary sense. The sense of the author intended to convey in and through a particular literary form. Inerrancy means that every sentence, when interpreted correctly, in accordance with its literary genre and its literary sense, is wholly reliable. And I love that phrase, the literal sense of Scripture is its literary sense. It's just a great Phrase. You will struggle interpreting the Bible accurately without that, without understanding that. So, examples for us. Here's one example of, of, of the way the Bible communicates to us. In Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, however you say that, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So there's one 
communication to us. There's one kind of document. Here's another. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Two different ways of communicating. Obviously, one coming from the Song of Solomon, the other coming from the New Testament. One being a poem, the other one being a narrative. And clearly, we can tell what they are. The first is giving us specific times and dates and names. So we know that we're dealing with a point in time in history. Luke is very clearly communicating to us, these people, these people, this year, this time, God's word came. So he's letting everybody know. He's, he's not just saying, um, the word of the Lord came and here's what the word of the Lord is. He's, he's identifying and making it clear to everybody that this is a historical event. This has taken place. The second is written poetically in dealing with simile. Simile is a figure of speech involving the comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind to make a description more emphatic or vivid. So Solomon is obviously telling us about a beauty of a woman and the way that she is precious and striking as a jewel, as intoxicating as wine, as satisfying as wheat, as aromatic as lilies. So again, to state the obvious, we interpret these two types of documents in a different way. We treat one literally, and the other one we treat figuratively, symbolically. Both are examples that are truthful and that are speaking to reality that's true, but in completely different ways, not necessarily literalistic, literalistically. So and before we go into these different genres of scripture, I want to engage in a touch of the history um, that Levi uh, mentioned some last time. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit um, to really set the stage here that helps frame the Greco-Roman world and the culture that would be so influential for the time of the New Testament. Um, Levi rehearsed a little bit of this last week. Some of this will be review, but I think there's going to be some parts that, that aren't. Understanding this surrounding world helps us understand the New Testament and it helps us see the times that gave birth to these kinds of genres that are contained in the New Testament for us. So, the time period we're talking about with the people and events in the New Testament, uh, from Mark to Revelation, and I say Mark intentionally because that was probably the first gospel, but the time period for the New Testament is about 100 years. That's what you're dealing with. So when you're reading those 27 books, you're dealing with about 100 years of real history. The ESV study Bible dates Jesus' birth at 5 B.C. Well, doesn't B.C. mean before Christ? Well, how'd that get messed up? I have no idea. But 5 B.C., or before the Common Era, if you want to use that. And his crucifixion was around AD 30 or AD 33, somewhere in there. So Jesus comes BC 5, and then AD 30 or 33, he is crucified. The first gospel was written about 20 years later. So we're just getting at the turn of before Christ, about 20 years after that, after the crucifixion, Mark is written. So... I said that wrong. 80, 30 to 33, 20 years later, the Gospel of Mark is written. About two more decades pass, and on August 30th, this one's very specific, on August 30th of AD 70, the Romans crush the temple of Jerusalem, less than 600 years after it had been rebuilt and never built again. The only thing that remains is the Western Wall, what we know of as the Wailing Wall. 
on the Temple Mount. And that is just the Western Wall. It's not even the Temple itself because the Temple was completely and utterly destroyed in AD 70. I just saw a news site today. wasn't even looking for it intentionally. Talking about the archaeology that they're doing there right now. And that they're discovering, indeed, that Josephus, who was a historian during that time, they're discovering um, um, the way in which the wall was, of the different arrows and things that they're finding, the catapults. They're, they're discovering that what Josephus reported at that time from AD 70 was, in fact, again, true. That the temple was crushed, which was in fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 13. Mark 13, 1-2. So, again, Jesus, this is sometime, what, so that would be around AD what, 27, 28, 29, something like that. Um, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple that's going to happen 40 years later. Mark 13, 1 to 2. <clears throat> As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And literally thrown down. There's stones on on the ground, crushed, when Titus came in and sacked it. Finally, the writing of Revelation um, ends the New Testament period with the exile of John by the Roman emperor Domitian, or however you say his name, on the island of Patmos in AD 95 to 96. So again, that's, that's, this, is, this is the time period of the New Testament. B.C. 5 to about AD 95 to 96. About 100 years. If, if you remember from last week, Levi, as he continued to emphasize the various twists and turns of the people, and one coming, and then another one trying to do it better and coming again, and another one trying to do it better and coming again, that Israel is used to facing outside rule. This is critical to understanding um, the, uh, the New Testament. Pastor Bob alluded to it today. They are used to being ruled by somebody else. Um, in this time, by the Roman Empire. Rome had come to be the occupying force in Israel when Pompey came into Jerusalem in 63 BC, approximately 63, excuse me, approximately 60 years before the birth of Jesus. So again, Jesus is BC, about 60 years before then is when the Romans come, come in. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, Israel is not its own, again, being ruled by somebody Else. And for the most part, Israel hadn't been its own for centuries, except for a very small period of time, which we'll get to. If you remember the Old Testament book of Malachi, so if you go to your Bibles, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. That was written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus, so that's about a 400-year time period. And at that time, Israel was quite used to dealing with being ruled by somebody else. They're used to being exiled, they're used to being occupied, and at that time they were under Persian rule. And so the Persians are here, 400 years before Jesus with Malachi. They are not knocked out as Israel's rulers until Alexander the Great comes in 331 BC and conquers most of that land of Israel and even goes further. One of the most significant results, and this is key, one of the most significant results of Alexander's conquests was the expansion and enforcement of Greek language and Greek culture. Fancy word for this is Hellenization. Hellenization. Greek language and Greek culture um, within his imperial reign, which stretches from Greece to India, from southern Russia to North Africa. 
So this is a big period, why he's called Alexander the Great, um, and why he's bringing his Grecian culture everywhere. So we can blame him for why the New Testament comes to us in Greek. Because Greek became the primary language. The prevalence of Greek throughout the world led to the production of the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. There's a bunch of other reasons in debate why exactly that happened. But obviously, Greece has taken over through Alexander the Great. And so, Jews that are scattered abroad can't read um, the Hebrew Bible because they begin to be influenced by Greek culture and this dominant language of Greek. And so the Septuagint became some of their Bible. And again, as Levi talked about, LXX, you might see that in different references or commentaries. LXX is referring to the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. And it's what the writers of the New Testament are mostly quoting, again, because everybody is influenced by Hellenization. And and so this is still, this is what, 300 years or so before Jesus even comes. And that's kind of when it starts. And years and years go by of Alexander the Great and, and Greek culture influencing the entire area. You can also blame Alexander for how Jewish people became infiltrated by their ideas and their culture. And so their cultural impact would have brought in a ton of compromising ideas to Jewish people. Libraries and universities he wanted to set up. Um, That brought Greek ideas. Obviously, you build libraries, he's trying to spread ideas. Greek sports would have generated interest and would have featured compromising ideas um, when gymnasiums are built because the men usually do their events in the nude. So, the Olympics, network television wouldn't have flown for us. There was also the theater to be concerned about. They're doing their theater and all that that would bring. Non-kosher foods, Greek culture, so Gentiles, all kinds of non-kosher foods, eaten at these various events and various festivals that they're having. So a major compromising pressure upon the Jewish people. Like with the Persians, the Jews were allowed to worship as they wished, but they must honor the Greek rule politically. And again, they would have obviously faced definite pressure from that society. The religion of the Greeks we probably know most about um, is, of course, the Greek gods. You know, immortals like Zeus and Poseidon. They also had a bunch of other kind of gods. They were polytheistic. That's the key word. Uh, Worship centered around temples to particular gods. Animal sacrifice would have played a big role for them as well. Um, But that would have been outside of the temple. During festivals, of which there were many, some of the animal sacrifices would be burnt on an altar and the other parts would be taken home and eaten. And that, right there, tells us why things like Romans 14 is written. When you have food that's sacrificed to idols, what do we do? They're doing their festival, they're doing their event, um, they're sacrificing these, these animals um, in front of their temples, and they are having food or selling food. What do I do? Is that okay for me to do that? Is that honoring to God if I do that? How, how could it be? This is a pagan ritual is what some of the Jews would have been saying. And of course Paul says, don't worry about it. But love people if they are concerned about it. Um, Anyway, Romans 14, right there. They also engaged in various forms of divination to determine what the gods were saying. And Levi alluded to that. Families themselves were arranged around cultic practices where the father functioned like a priest making offerings to deceased ancestors. And I think the hearth in the house had something to do with that as well as graves. 
So, what followed the reign of the Greeks, as Levi showed us, was the Egyptian and Syrian reign of the Ptolemies and Seleucids that began around 323 BC. So, Alexander isn't there for that long, but then um, the influence of Greek culture is still all over the place and functions under Egyptian and Syrian rule. The Jews, again, facing similar religious freedoms um, that they faced under the Persians and also under the Greeks until... and Antiochus IV, a Syrian ruler who likes to call himself Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is usually what we read it as. And that means God himself, little g God. That's what Epiphanes means. Um, He increases taxation. He eventually slaughters many Jewish people. He commits what many saw as the abomination of desolation, which is spoken about in Daniel 11, 31-35. The abomination he commits was bringing idolatry into the Jewish temple that he renamed for Zeus and going into the most holy place and probably sacrificing swine, pigs, unclean, on the altar. So just a complete, um, <laughs> just, just a complete um, takeover of anything that the Jews would ever want to occur. You're entering your most holy place. You are renaming the temple, no longer God of Israel. Zeus, you're going into our holiest place and you are sacrificing pig on the altar. That was 168 when that occurred. So again, just to kind of frame our... So we got 168, Jesus born in five. Um, So that's only about 150 years when that is happening. Um, The Jews have had enough of, of this. A father and son's team by the name of Maccabeus, which means hammerer in Greek, begins to push the Syrians back. They lead a revolt. Eventually Judas, the hammerer, Judas, Maccabeus, gave Israel their independence from foreign rule in 164. So that 164, they start to experience a little bit of independence. And that's why Hanukkah exists. Because it's a celebration for purifying the temple under Judas Maccabeus. And you can read about that event in 1 Maccabees 4. Um, 1 Maccabees 1-4 to kind of covers this whole thing actually. It starts with Alexander the Great. starts to talk about the different kings. And then um, it starts to talk about the Maccabean family and the revolt that takes place and starts to confirm a lot of this history. First, Maccabees, that's the Apocrypha, which we talked about. Um, And you can read that if you get uh, a Catholic Bible or again, if you get a New Revised Standard Version, sometimes we'll have it in it as as well. But several different things happen there. I wanted to read um, just a couple things in First Maccabees 4 to kind of give us a little bit of of a sense here. If I can find it somewhere in here. Um, In First Maccabees, uh, Chapter One. It speaks to this desolating sacrilege. This is verse 43, a little bit before it takes place. Um, Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion, speaking of Epiphanes, 
And they sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And in verse 44, Now on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offerings. And then they decree, in verse 60, to put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. Chapter 1. So, very upsetting to Jewish people. In chapter 4, after various revolts, you have the son of Matthias Maccabeus, Judas, goes in and sees the desecration and the gates burned, the sanctuary desolate. And he, in verse 41, Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. In verse 45, they tear down the altar that the sacrilege takes place on. They take unhewn stones as the law directs. They build a new altar like the former one. They rebuilt the sanctuary. And it goes on to say in verse 58, after they do all this and purify the temple, there was great joy among the people and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. And it talks about Hanukkah in the next verse, though it doesn't say that. But so that's what that is <laughs> um, for some context. The independence of the Jews, though, is, is kind of independence like this because those Maccabeans become quite corrupt and um, the rule isn't the greatest rule. And so that only lasts about 80 years or so until Rome arrives at the request of some of the Jewish leaders with Pompey's armies in Jerusalem in 63. Um, so that's our context. And the Jews do not experience independence as a nation state again until after World War II. A few thoughts on Rome. We've all seen the movies. We've seen gladiators. You know, we've seen the violence. We've seen all that, all that stuff. There are several reasons why Roman rule was positive for the spread of Christianity, there was one common language um, that was primarily spoken, and that was Greek. There was the, the Pax Romana, or Pa Romana, I forget how you say that, but that basically brings peace to the territories. Um, they have advanced communication and transportation that's not seen again until probably the Reformation Europe, so that's helping the spread of Christianity. Old identities give way to, a, um, to more cosmopolitan urban life which creates new religious identities. Cross-cultural barriers get broken down. New world views happen because you have all these people interacting. Um, Rome's judicial process was actually relatively advanced and kind of fair. So all these different things that are going on give us an idea of, of them, the culture. Um, as far as their religion goes, like the Greeks, they had their gods and priests and sacrifices and temples too, but they had an imperial cult that deified rulers like Julius Caesar as well as Augustus. And so when Paul speaks of Jesus as Lord in the New Testament, it is a political statement. It is a theological and political statement. Because it would have been a clear shot across the bay at the Roman emperor itself. That big long quote that I have for you, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, that big long quote from N.T. Wright there, gives a great unpacking of Romans. The fact that at the beginning of Romans, Paul speaks about Jesus in this way. And so again, with that context, you have the imperial cult, and that means basically their emperors being treated in a godlike way. And Paul says this. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's writing this to Rome, the Roman people. Jesus is Lord. He's using kingship language. He is in the line of David. He is Lord. Well, they think Caesar is Lord. Caesar is a god. Caesar is Lord. So this is a radical statement um, in the cultural context. Um, in that N.T. Wright quote, if you look toward, I don't know, kind of the beginning, it says, Rome had done, Augustus had done the sort of thing only gods can do. Rome had power, the power to sweep aside all opposition, the power to create an extraordinary new world. Rome claimed to have brought justice to the world. The, the ascension of the the accession of the emperor and also his birthday could be hailed as good news. We should remember, of course, that most of the empire and certainly the parts of it where Paul worked were Greek-speaking. The emperor was the, the Kyrios, the lord of the world, the one who claimed the allegiance and loyalty of subjects throughout his wide empire. And that word is what's used for Jesus as lord. Um, and so he goes on there. He also talks about how at the end of Romans he does basically the same thing just to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the ruler of all the nations. Which in that day and age it would have already seemed like all the nations are being ruled because Rome has taken over everything. So Jesus is Lord is one of the biggest theological statements in all the Bible. It's a political one. It's an announcement that he is the Lord of the world. That Caesar is not that all other rulers and authorities are under King Jesus. And so we must be careful, um, obviously, not to politicize everything in the church, but we also must remember that we are, in a sense, speaking politically because we're saying our allegiance is to King Jesus, who is Lord of the earth. And so November elections are pretty small in comparison. For more of what life was like, that's what that document in there um, that I gave you kind of gives you some different ideas if you want to look at that about what life would have been like in the time of Jesus. One of the main things we need to understand with all this background is that the Jewish people are experiencing a Greco-Roman cultural and political experience. All that I've talked about with the Grecian ideas and with the Roman ideas that stretch backs to Alexander the Greek to the present influence of Rome. And so Jesus arrives on the scene. The Jewish people were back under rule after having tasted freedom not too long before and were awaiting another Messiah King to get rid of these enemies, to purify their land, and to reinstitute all that they had been longing for. And so that's where we are at um, when the New Testament is written. And we'll take a break right there. And then we'll start hitting some of these genres. So, go to the bathroom, grab some whatever you'd like. I, th- I think there's coffee, water, all that kind of stuff. So, we'll, we'll take about five minutes or so. <laughs> Run! Make a break for it. As we pause... No questions?
Everybody has the Maccabees memorized? Think about that? Yeah. All right. I know. It's crazy. It, it it's really. Yeah. It is. It was a not a happy time. That's for sure. All right. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to talk about genres of scripture in light of that Old Testament and intertestamental background. Um, and we, and I'm going to kind of weave in different cultural ideas. I'm going to kind of do this as a little bit of genre, kind of weave into some culture, a little bit of gospels or narratives or whatever. And hopefully I'm picking certain things that I find interesting. Um, there's obviously, you could do classes on any one of these subjects, clearly. So, so New Testament genres number two, A, historical narratives, four gospels and acts. At the most basic level, the Gospels are historical narratives. That's what the Gospels are. That's the genre that it is. What's a narrative? A narrative tells a story and connects events. That's what a narrative does. Nice fancy word, story. Um, The Gospels are also connected to Greco-Roman genre. And the genre of that time that they're connected to is that of an ancient biography, which is different than the way we would structure a current biography. Some ancient biography was focused upon elevating a particular hero to emulate. So they would tell a biography of a hero, of a person, to kind of say, hey, emulate these people. Um, he, he is a model for us to be like. A model of virtues and values that we should imitate. And so there, there's a little bit of that in the Gospels, but mostly the Gospels are portraying Jesus as fulfilling God's purposes in the Old Testament and the announcement of his life, death, and resurrection, which is to be believed, to be trusted. So the Gospels are distinct from ancient biography and they're essentially its own kind of genre. There's a similarity. Jesus is the hero. But it's not just model him. No, it's believe all that he is, all that he says, all that he has done. The Gospels were meant to be read aloud. So not just meant to be like scientifically broken apart and studied each and every little tiny part, but meant to be read aloud. It's not, you know, a culture of smartphones. There's no printing press, nothing like that. So they hear it. It's oral tradition passing things around. It's speaking it, proclaiming it, reading it. So like the gospel message itself, the gospels, the documents are meant to be heard. The four Gospels do not have the names of the authors written within them. So Mark, Luke, John, they're not inside of those documents. They don't say, author Mark. Um, They may have been attached after they were written. They probably began to circulate by some scribe. But even though that's the case, it's very likely that the names attached to them were the people who wrote them. Very likely. The Gospel writers are writing for different audiences and thus they have different themes. So the Gospels are different, not contradictory, they're different, with different themes. They structure their report of what God did in the person of Jesus of Nazareth in light of the audiences that they're trying to talk to. So, they are not structuring their narrative chronologically to tell you, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. There's a lot of that, there's a certain amount of chronology to it, but it's not always a chronological report. 
they are motivated by a particular theme and by the audience they are writing to. And that's why statements that are made can be paraphrased or can be condensed. And why you seem to have different events happening at different times in the Gospels to emphasize certain themes. So for example, the cleansing of the temple takes place at the end of the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the cleansing of the temple takes place at the beginning of John's Gospel. Now, maybe some would argue that those could be two different times. But according to Dr. Michael Kruger, one of the reasons this may be is because one of the points John is making is that Jesus is the place where God tabernacles. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the one where the presence of God dwells. He is God in the flesh. So my thought is that this would relate to when John sticks that at the beginning of the letter in John 1.14 where it says that Jesus dwells among us. He gets to it rather quickly in John 2 that he is cleansing the temple and saying that he is the temple. He is better than the tent in the wilderness. The word for dwelling that John uses is Jesus pitched his tent, which essentially is referring back to the Old Testament and reminding them that he is now the place where the presence of God dwells and is. So John is showing us that Jesus is the new temple, which would have been a radical statement (laughs) to say the least, especially in light of the things I was just talking about and the things we were just reading. The temple is a massive deal for the people of Israel, for the Jews. John 2, I just want to read that. Um, John 2, 13 to 22. Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, so Old Testament, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken So the temple was the place, as N.T. Wright says, was the spot where heaven and earth met. Most holy place. All those, when you spend all that time in the Old Testament, reading page after page of the way they're building the temple and measurements and this and that and sacrifices, the temple is a massive deal. The place where heaven and earth essentially meet. And so, when Jesus comes along and basically is saying, I'm the temple, he's the place where heaven and earth meet, he is the presence of God. He is saying um, that he himself is embodying what the temple was meant to be for the people of Israel. So all of the hopes that the Jewish people were longing for, again, what, what we just talked about, temple 
gets destroyed. They rebuild the temple. Somebody comes in and utterly desecrates it not that long before. The temple gets purified. Jesus comes along and starts talking this way. Only, you know, then he's talking about the fact that it's going to be torn down and destroyed. Well, some of that not only is just prophesying history and to say that he is a true prophet, but the fact that um, something's changing. The religion as they know it is changing. Jesus is the temple and the place where he dwells. Now, what um, Israel would have been longing for, they had four or five basic longings when we start thinking of things like temple and things like the kingdom of God. And again, we're all talking about rule here. That's what Levi's been talking about. That's what I've been talking about for the last rule and kingdoms and upheaval um, and change. Um, violence. Rule, reign, different people coming in. Jesus comes in and he announces the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what the Gospels talk about. Kingdom of God everywhere. Language. That's because they, they, they as the people of Israel, are waiting for five things. Um, Wright talks about this. The return of exile. The return of Yahweh to Zion. The defeat of evil. The rebuilding of the temple. And the reinstallation of the Davidic Monarchy, And usually all those are kind of tied to one theme. All of their longings. All the people are going to come back. All of our, We're all going to be gathered together again. Yahweh is going to come to Zion. He's going to defeat our enemies. He's going to remove all the pagans. All the idolaters. Um, the temple is going to be rebuilt and restored by the ruler and the Messiah. The anointed one who's going to come and do all this. And he's going to be king. The one who does all this. All those are kind of wrapped up in one big world view that they have. And Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is here. It is now. And the Gospels are structured in such a way to show how, how sacrifice, the sacrifice for sins, Jesus' death, um, how all that he said, uh, the fact in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, oh, this was your law? I say to you this. He's the lawgiver. He's the temple. He's the sacrifice. He's all the hopes and the longings um, of Israel are being reinterpreted in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a massive theme right there. If we get that, that's connecting this whole Bible together. It also plays a lot into your view of the way the end times work, which is in Revelation. <laughs> um, but, but, this, but that's what we need to really see. That... Jesus is saying, all this stuff is happening in and through me. And the gospel writers are arranging and structuring and building Old Testament references and all kinds of different things to show that Jesus is the place where all of these longings come. He's the king and he's bringing the kingdom. Um, the gospels are also based upon eyewitness accounts. That's critical. We already saw that in Luke. No, actually, no, we didn't. I think I read a different part of it. Uh, Luke 1, 1 to 3. Luke basically tells us that. So if we're looking for a good biblical reason, Luke 1, 1 to 3 says that the genre he's writing is a narrative. He talks about the importance of eyewitnesses in order to give this person, or it could be a group of people, Theophilus, certainty. He's trying to give him certainty. That's the very first part of Luke. This is, this is who he's writing to. He's trying to give certainty. These are eyewitness accounts. This is what happened. And he goes on to talk about his narrative telling of the story of what Jesus did. So the Gospels are accumulating eyewitness accounts and then the author is writing 
and tying different themes together, um, Old Testament stuff together, all to kind of show um, who and what um, Jesus has, has done. So Luke mentions it explicitly. New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham in his 2007 book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels is eyewitness testimony, notes the importance of eyewitness accounts in all of the Gospels. I haven't read the book, but he gives an interview in Christianity Today, which is pretty helpful. And he says, I think it helps us to understand what sort of history we have in the Gospels. Most history rests mostly on testimony. Because we don't have smartphones videoing everything. It's resting on testimony. In other words, it entails believing what witnesses say. How do we convict somebody of a crime nowadays? Well, still testimony. Um, We can assess whether we think witnesses are trustworthy and we may be able to check parts of what they say by other evidence, but in the end, we have to trust them. We can't independently verify everything they say. If we could, we wouldn't need witness. It's the same way with witnesses in court. Testimony asks to be trusted and it's not irrational to do so. We do, we do so all the time. Which, of course, in our life, we trust what people say, what they testify to. What happened in your day? Well, this is what happened. How can you, can you independently verify all of that? Uh, no, I, I'm like, this just functions in the way in which um, um, history and the reporting of past history functions based on testimony. Anyway, he kind of goes on there. Um, but one example of the eyewitness testimony... Um, is in the Gospel of Mark. Many scholars believe that actually Mark's Gospel, like I said, was the first Gospel and probably what some of the other Gospels were based on. Um, But that Mark was probably reporting Peter's eyewitness accounts. Sometimes they call it Peter's Gospel. Mark was probably with Peter getting a bunch of eyewitness accounts from him and then him writing it down and recording it. The reason why this is believed is because there's an early document that records the words of one called the Elder. There's an early document that talks about this person called the Elder, who is probably John, the Apostle. This is an early church document. Um, And this is what the early church document says. And this is what the Elder said. Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, actually wrote, though not in order, again, not always chronological, as many of the things said and done by the Lord as he had noted. Add to this the fact that Peter is the first one mentioned in Mark's Gospel. He appears throughout the Gospel. He's mentioned at the end of Mark's Gospel. We get the sense that Peter's really involved with the way that Mark is writing. Not only does this confirm the eyewitness accounts, but it gives early testimony that one of the Gospels was not written in chronological order necessarily. Another example of eyewitness testimony in Mark is found in the women's reporting of events like the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. And those reports in Mark focus on what they saw. He keeps saying things like, saw, they saw this, look. Um, which may be given evidence of the fact that Mark is hearing this from the women themselves. Bauckham says this, Moreover, in his references to these women, Mark is constantly saying that they saw and observed. He could hardly have piled more instances of verbs of seeing. The women do hardly anything else except watch and observe. Mark is telling us very clearly that these women disciples are the eyewitnesses from whom this narrative of events at which Peter, his principal eyewitness source, was not present. What he means by that is toward the end of Mark's gospel, um, a lot of this is relying on the side of women. Why? Because all the disciples bailed. They're gone. They're out of the picture. But the women are there. And they are reporting. 
If, um, uh, just flip through this maybe later tonight and look at Mark 15 and 16. And you'll notice, and you'll notice it. These key events in, obviously, in the life of Jesus um, are being testified to, not by the disciples, but by women. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Mark 15, just to give you some... Let's see. Uh, Mark 15, there were also women looking on from a distance. Again, looking on from a distance. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Uh, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So they're looking on from the distance. They're looking at the crucifixion. They see where he's laid, where he's buried. See him dying, see him die, see him get buried. Um, and then in verse 16, and you have 1 through 8, and I think Levi talked about that, about whether you stop Mark's gospel <clears throat> at verse 8 or not. Um, but that's all women. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, again, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. It kind of goes on, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And then you actually find out from other Gospels that they did testify to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. But the importance of women as eyewitness testimony is significant. And this is, again, me kind of weaving back to culture. Um, given a woman's diminished role at this cultural time in history. It becomes even more significant when one considers that they are the first eyewitnesses in all the Gospels of the most significant event in the Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus. At that time, if a writer was trying to convince you uh, or trying to convince you of something unusual happening at the key point of the narrative and the hardest thing in the narrative to convince people of, a woman's testimony would not have been the writer's first choice. Period. End of story. One of the first pagan critics of Christianity was Celsus, who discounted the resurrection because of this very fact. He treated the resurrection as being witnessed by a hysterical woman. So you can see how stereotypes would have governed many during that time. Craig Keener, a noted New Testament scholar with an emphasis on cultural background, says, quote, Most of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries held little esteem for the testimony of women. This reflects a broader Mediterranean and limited trust of women's speech and testimony also enshrined in Roman law. And then N.T. Wright, in his much-celebrated work on the resurrection, writes, this one's in your, in your little handout, it will not do to mark the gospel writer or anyone else at that stage making up a would-be apologetic legend about an empty tomb and having women be the ones who find it. The point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. We regret it, but this is how the Jewish world and most others worked. So generally, the view of women in the Greco-Roman period was negative. Aspects of Judaism were negative toward women. Josephus, the guy I mentioned about who's recording um, the destruction of Jerusalem, he spoke of women as inferior. Philo, the first century philosopher and commentator, treats women as weak. The apocryphal book, again, to go to the apocrypha, Sirach, 
says in chapter 14, four, excuse me, 42.14, Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is a woman who brings shame and disgrace. Maybe most disturbing of all, um, one source says, According to the rabbinic Tsefta, which may well in this case reflect 1st century A.D. tradition, a Jewish man prayed three benedictions each day, including one in which he thanked God that he was not made a woman. Marriage and sexuality for women isn't any better in the Greco-Roman period. There was division among Hebrew schools about how and when a man could divorce a woman. The more conservative school, Shammai, believed it could only happen due to adultery while a more liberal school, Hillel, maintained that there might be a myriad of reasons, such as spinning in the street, talking with a stranger, a spoiled dinner, a dog bite that did not heal, or finding another woman who was more attractive. Out of Hebrew, Greek, and Roman women, Greek women seemed to have it the worst. The Greek woman was thought to have less virtue than a man and to be devoid of moral conscience. Women were also most likely to be exposed, and this is one of the worst things. Exposure was the practice of leaving an unwanted child out of sight, usually a garbage dump or dung heap, where the child either died or was taken by a stranger to be raised, usually a slave. The practice of exposure then was kind of like the practice of abortion now. You just leave the child at the site. A lot of times women aren't important, so they get left there. Sometimes a slave picks them up, sometimes they just die. So, within this cultural context, again, it's striking how affirming the New Testament is toward women. And I think we really need to see this, um, especially as a church that teaches that, um, that women um, cannot hold the office of, of elder. But the New Testament is replete with affirming women in this kind of culture. And so we must be too. Any kind of sense we give or, or that any of us would ever give of some kind of inferiority is blatantly against the New Testament scriptures. Uh, there is affirma- Women are the ones who first went to speak the gospel. Jesus is alive. That would have been, <laughs> again, in this culture, unbelievable. They're the ones who report it to the other disciples. The men are gone. Um, just think about all... Um, how often Jesus mentions women and his interactions with women. And then, I mean, even, um, even at the end of Paul's letters, um, the way in which they're, they're workers with Paul, people meeting in their house, probably a wealthy woman meeting at times uh, churches in, um, in, in the house. So one could say um, that the Bible affirms um, the, the place of women and in any kind of disregard or, or lowering of status in the church is to be um, disgusted, <laughs> is, isn't to disgust us because it's absolutely false. Um, so the Gospels aren't simply narrations of what has happened in the present and how that affects the future. And I'm transitioning to something new. <laughs> um, they are describing that what has happened in the present are fulfillments of the Old Testament scriptures of what happened in the past. The Gospels are theologically driven and full of Old Testament allusions and citations. C.S. Lewis said, One of the rewards of reading the Old Testament regularly, you keep on discovering more and more what a tissue of quotations from it the New Testament is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the German, 
in a cultural environment that was built around annihilating the Jewish people. (laughs) Raised the importance of the Old Testament highly. His quote, Whoever would too quickly and too directly be and feel in accordance with the New Testament is, in my opinion, no Christian. So to just be a New Testament Christian, well, Bonhoeffer says you're not. But it doesn't really matter what Bonhoeffer says, ultimately. Um, but the point is, the New Testament everywhere is talking about that all that Jesus did is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Finding it all over the place. That's why there's so many quotations, allusions um, to all that he did. And the fact that that was their Bible, and they're always saying that scripture would be fulfilled. They're always saying, it is written. Things like that. And then Jesus, of course, himself with his high view of, of Scripture. Richard Hayes, professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School, says that the gospel narratives are testimony and our job is to read the gospel writers' acts of narrative witness bearing and to discern the ways in which, this is the key phrase, their testimony is the product of a, catal- of a catalytic fusion of Israel's Scripture and the story of Jesus. So again, even the way that the the gospel writers structure the story, things like out of Egypt I have called my son, um, um, referencing the Exodus, Um, there's all kinds of ways in which they're showing, the writers of the gospels are trying to show you the Jesus story is the story of Israel. And the Jesus story is Jesus doing all that Israel failed to do. And Jesus is fulfilling all that they should have fulfilled. And he is in the line of Israel. And so Jesus is the true Israel. Readers of Scripture are thus engaged in the task of what what Hayes calls reading backwards, discovering figural fusions between the story of Jesus and the older and longer story of Israel's journey with God. And there's all kinds of research nowadays, a lot of scholarship that's really picking up on really trying to tie and weave in the uh, the Old Testament to the New Testament because more and more things are being discovered, especially when you look at the way that they quote the Old Testament, again, with the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, um, to, to, to weave in um, the story of, of all of Israel and Jesus and bringing them together. Andreas Kostenberger and Richard Patterson argue that the historical narratives of the Gospel are similar and in some cases even modeled after the Old Testament historical narratives. So think John, the Gospel of John. What does that reflect? That reflects Genesis 1. Luke's account of Jesus' birth, the birth of Samuel, very similar. Or reading about Samson's birth recently in Judges. Maybe more so um, than being born out of a cultural era, the Gospels are born out of the Old Testament Scriptures, which means that Scriptures interpret and even form other Scriptures. And there's just kind of this building block throughout Genesis, um, throughout the Pentateuch, and then the Law, and then the Prophets, they're kind of just scripture just building on itself, fusing together, um, amplifying on, on themes. Interesting. Uh, the Gospels reveal that all that Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension fulfills the promises of God in the Old Testament. God is the author of history. God made promises to the people he picked in history, Israel. And God has entered history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God is promising to bring history to a culmination point when Jesus comes again to judge the nations, every individual, and bring all those who trust Him into the enjoyment of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a new heavens and a new earth forever. 
Sometimes the Gospel writers are not merely explaining what happened, but they're giving a theological explanation of what happened in light of the Old Testament. Jesus passing in the boat talks about passing like he went to pass them by. That's probably a reference to God's self-disclosure in Exodus of passing by Moses and revealing who he was, signaling Jesus is actually... Um, the writer is showing that Jesus is God in that text when he's walking on the sea. He's not saying Jesus historically, chronologically, or literally was trying to walk by the boat. It's a signal to something that happened in the Old Testament. So sometimes they're operating theologically. Um, uh, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and then you have John, which is, which is much different. And I'm not going to go there. Let's see. Um, so, that's, that's some gospel stuff. Um, just a, a, like a tiny word on the book of Acts. <laughs> the book of Acts is really a sequel with Luke's gospel and is a historical narrative that tells us what happened to the followers of Jesus after his ascension and how God promised and how God's promised Holy Spirit would empower the followers of Jesus to move from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the book shows that progression. The book starts in Jerusalem and it ends with Paul in Rome, which in that sense would be the ends of the earth. Um, that's all I have on Acts. <laughs> uh, but but um, that's, that's some thoughts on the Gospels as their genre and also as some of the background to it and how, wow, that can really, some, of, some of that stuff really can open things up as we begin to, to learn more about it. Let me pause there for a second. Any, any thoughts or questions on, on that? Yeah, um, Luke. Luke is really focused on the Gentiles, and Mary's a big Mary's song, and all that is in there. Um, and he's very focused on Gentiles, which is why Luke 15, which is very popular about Jesus' role with the outcasts and the sinners and the prodigal and the lost coin. And again, this is showing how writers are building certain themes to speak to an audience. Luke being focused on Gentiles and the lost and the outcast and those that are outside to show how Jesus brings them in. Um, so, you're right, like all these different emphases that the different Gospels have. <coughs> yep. Anybody else? Questions or anything? <clears throat> okay. Um, that's the bulk of it, which I know there's not, there's about 30 minutes or so. Um, as far as, <clears throat> that's where most of my time wanted to be spent on, on the Gospels there. But when we come to the epistles and the, the letters, we're talking now about letters. That's what epistles are. That's the book of Romans all the way through Jude in uh, the New Testament. Um, that genre is what the New Testament is mostly made up of, at least in terms of books. 
21 of the 27 New Testament books are letters. The primary author, of course, is the Apostle Paul, which is why we talk about him so much. Um, But there are several more authors. Douglas Moo, he's one scholar, he says, the 21 New Testament letters were written by six different early Christian leaders. So we have 21 letters written by six different people, but 13 of the 21 are attributed to the Apostle Paul. And there's all kinds of debate over which ones he did or didn't write. Um, Two to the Apostle Peter, one to James, and one to Jude, a brother of James. No specific name is associated with the four remaining letters. The author of Hebrews cannot be identified. The author of 2nd and 3rd John is identified as the elder. And if you remember what I talked about earlier, about that early church document that talked about this person called the elder. And the similarities in style and content with 1st John make it likely that the same author is responsible for all three. As the titles in our Bible suggest, John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, and the author of the fourth, fourth gospel is probably the writer of these three letters. So kind of the two main people that are writing um, the New Testament, at least when it comes to the letter portion, you have Paul and you have John. And of course, Paul takes up a lot of the New Testament as a whole, but then you also have John taking up a lot of the New Testament as a whole because John writing John, John writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and John writing Revelation. So you'll have different cool little books if you're into that kind of stuff. We're talking about like Pauline theology or Johnine theology. I mean, John is having epistles, he's having Revelation, and he's having um, the Gospel of John, which sometimes when you read all of them together, you can see the different ways that he's using some of the same themes and terms. So sometimes helping to interpret um, Revelation will help if you read John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, and so that's how sometimes isolating, like I was talking about at the beginning, kind of going particular to help um, you understand books is to read other books by the same author. <clears throat> the Pauline letters, the letters of Paul, there are several different groups there. There are some that are called chief letters, like Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians. Um, and that's because of their theology, their length, maybe chief letters, the big letters. But really, it's probably more to separate, I would think, the fact that there's the prison letters, the ones that he wrote from prison. He's in prison when he is, what he says, in chains in each of the letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Those are when he is in chains, in prison, the prison letters. Then there's the pastoral letters, the ones when he's writing um, with elders in mind and the leaders of the church in mind. And those are First and Second Timothy and Titus, three T's. First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral letters. And then Mu says... First and second, first and second, uh, first and second Thessalonians comprise the fourth group, whatever that means. It's like, oh, and then there's first and second Thessalonians over on the side there. Um, but anyway, uh, there's so again, there's different ways to group everything uh, together to kind of put things in categories, and we can kind of see different themes develop at times in each of those categories. Letters were a normal way of communicating in the Greco-Roman world. And the biblical letters typically follow the format of Greco-Roman letters. 
E. Randolph Richards writes, Greco-Roman letters had a basic structure of an opening, a body. So, opening, body, bigger, closing. Paul's letter, letter openings contain the usual information in the usual format. Sender to recipient. Greetings. Meaning, the one who's sending it to the recipient, and they'll say, greetings. Um, and one old Greco-Roman letter said this, Cherimon to Serapion greeting. He's just establishing, that's why Paul usually starts it that way, because that's the way Greco-Roman letters, that's how you wrote a letter back then. Um, Paul used the same format, yet Paul also revised the format slightly. He modified the traditional word for greeting to grace. A subtle play on words. So again, Paul's emphasis, not just, I greet you, this generic, what's up? How you doing? I greet you. But he's saying, great grace to you. So he's putting his whole gospel into just his greeting, making a little change. Um, Richards goes on to say, we should notice another interesting facet of Paul's letter addresses. We would expect the address to read something like, Salos Paulos of Tarsus too. So again, to follow the standard then, where the sender is saying, this is who I am, I'm of Tarsus, or I'm of this family, and I'm writing to you. The author says, since his family was somewhat prominent, we expect him to identify himself by his family. Paul, however, does not. Rather than using his earthly household, he identifies himself as a member of a new household. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Instead of identifying himself as the son of a prominent household, he identifies himself as the slave of another. Paul is not merely remaining neutral by avoiding his Jewish name Saul. He is aligning himself with a new household, the household of God. This is Paul's consistent solution to the Jewish-Gentile tension. We are all a new creation in which there is no longer Jew or Gentile. All of us belong to Christ. He's now of the household of Christ. So the way Greco-Roman letters, this is my household, this is who I am. Paul says, forget um, family identities. I'm talking about a new family. So his whole identity, who he was, has been radically altered and changed by what Jesus Christ has done. I am now a servant of Christ. I am a slave of Christ. I'm an apostle. Identity is switched. Um, Letters also had thanksgivings or appeals to the gods for health and blessing at the beginning of letters. And they also closed with a health wish as well. You'll see that sometimes in the letters. Closing with, I think John talks about your soul prospering. Um, and, And you yourself, you being healthy and your physical health prospering. One early letter says, again, these words, I don't know how to do them. Cherimon de Serapion, greeting. Before all else, I pray that you will be well and I make your obeisance before the Lord Serapis daily. That's a Greco-Roman letter. The way it introduces. Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm talking to the gods for you. Um, Serapis, who is the Greek-Egyptian god of fertility and afterlife. May you be blessed by fertility and afterlife. And I'm doing that for you every day. Um, and so Paul obviously doesn't go that direction. He's not under the gods. He is under um, the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of why the letters are so important is because they are applying, and this is um, probably the main theme I want you to see here and then we'll move to Revelation. Um, they are, the letters are applying all that God has done in the person of Jesus to a specific people in specific situations. So the letters addressing what life looks like in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's summarizing doctrine. He'll usually do that for the first part of the letter, have a couple chapters of a bunch of doctrine, or like Romans, almost the whole thing is doctrine. And then in the last four chapters or so, 
And this is how it applies to your issue with food sacrifice to idols. Um, and so, letters summarize that summarize the doctrine that flows from all that the gospel showed. What Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has done. Here's the doctrine of what that means. And then now I will go and apply it to this situation in your life or in your church or with your idols or with um, anything else that's going on. So letters summarize the doctrine that flows from the historical events of Jesus' work. They explain and apply all that God did for the world in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth to specific people, events, and situations. And that's what the letters function to do. And, 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 and just a word on this too. Again, we want to understand what the author says. So when you're reading the Bible, before you want to figure out how to apply it to your life, it's helpful to know what was going on then, what's the saying, oh, and then what does that mean for us now? Sometimes when we reverse that, we mess it up. Because we're bringing our cultural assumptions, our assumptions about identity, or about God, or about family, or um, sex, or marriage, or whatever else. We bring our culture to the text and say, oh no, this, is, this text is coming at me from that author, what's going on then, and then I need to bring it and apply it to what's going on now. Um, so that's letters. The last one. Uh, Revelation, apocalyptic. Revelation is apocalyptic literature, but to be fair, it's actually several genres in one. It's epistle, so it's letter, it's prophecy, and it's apocalyptic. And we know that because the first part treats it as an epistle, but then you have the seven churches in Revelation. What are those? Those are letters inside the book of Revelation where he writes to each of the churches. Jesus Speaking, and then we have prophecy and apocalypse. What is apocalyptic literature? Um, apocalypses feature revelatory visions within a narrative framework. They utilize symbolic, figurative, and metaphoric language. And this one is kind of key. They interpret present earthly circumstances in light of supernatural heavenly realities in the future. So interpreting what's happening now in the present in light of, wow, what's happening in the heavens. That's what the uh, NIV Zondervan Study Bible defined it as, which is actually another study Bible worth looking at. I want to look at that a little bit, but there's some helpful stuff in there. Um, one commentator says, um, one of the definitions that he gives for apocalyptic is simply the present addressed through parallels with the future. The present addressed through parallels with the future. So the nature of the book of Revelation is not just about what's going to happen in the future, but that what is happening in the future and what is happening in the supernatural realm now will affect you in this realm right now. So it's like it's viewing earth through the lens of heaven. When we say it's prophetic and apocalyptic, um, we shouldn't stretch that too much. Um, it's kind of a combination of the two. Sometimes the prophetic is focused on what happens later in history, like what all the prophets are doing. This is going to happen later. But apocalyptic is like, this is what happens at the end. <laughs> this is what happens at the end of history. And the end of history should influence the present. Because if we know what's going to happen at the end, that should have radical effect upon us right now. Because that's telling us this is the end. Greg Beal, um, 
noted commentator on apocalyptic literature and has a big work on the book of Revelation. And he kind of writes kind of complicated sentences, um, but that's the one I put in there. Uh, the apocalyptic prophetic nature of Revelation can be defined as God's revelatory interpretation of his mysterious counsel about past, present, and future redemptive eschatological history. <laughs> so, redemptive, redeem, eschat- eschatology, just as a pause here. Eschatology, that's like the study of the last things. Fancy word. Um, eschatology, the study of the last things, the study of the end. And how the nature and operation of heavenly rule relate to this. This revelation erupts from the hidden outer heavenly dimensions into the earthly and is given to a prophet who is to write it down so that it will be communicated to the churches. The heavenly revelation usually runs counter to the assessment of history and values from the human earthly perspective and demands that people change and realign their views with the heavenly view. In this respect, people in the churches are exhorted to submit to the demands of the book's message or else face judgment. In particular, John writes because he perceives that there is a real danger that the churches will conform to the values of the world system and not to God's transcendent truth. The pressure of imminent persecution, which already had commenced on a small scale, again, if that's written in like AD 90, was the probably specific occasion which caused the reader-hearers to entertain thoughts of compromise. So, Again, the focus on Revelation being written to a present situation of persecution, a present situation of of Roman rule and involvement. Probably the temple has already been destroyed. Um, Compromise happening, what's going to happen to the church movement. All this stuff is going on and Revelation happens, apocalypse happens. And he, he speaks to these particular churches and to these particular people to say, we have to view all of our life in light of heaven, in light of the way the end is going to look. Um, Grant Osborne says, it's important to realize that we know more about the second coming than Jesus' Jewish disciples did about the first. They too thought they were reading the scriptures rightly. And the reason why I say that is, is um, he, he's, he's emphasizing the fact that we know about the second coming more than what the Jewish people did about the first coming of Christ and they also thought they were reading the scriptures rightly which is a rebuke to us to always think that we know how to interpret the book of Revelation. Um, because sometimes we can interpret it um, literalistically and we can try to make the symbols point to present literal reality which we have to be careful with. One thing you'll notice is like whether it's books on the rapture, whether it's books on the end times, there is such an appetite and there's so much money in that field because we naturally want to know what's going to happen at the end um, that we try to apply it right now to today. I mean, people have, been, people have thought the end of history was going to happen for centuries. And they've been writing books on the 88 reasons why the rapture is going to happen in 1988. And then here's all these reasons of, of how you interpret this particular symbol and why it reflects the helicopter in the air. Um, and we've got to be really careful with that. Many of the Jewish religious leaders, and, and I think we've got to be careful with trying to do it literally to now too, because many of the Jewish leaders then who were waiting for the first coming are waiting for the 
for the um, coming of the Messiah were expecting a literal fulfillment. And they didn't get that. Jesus didn't banish the Romans. He didn't rebuild them. He didn't do all they were expecting them to do. He didn't set up the literal kingdom. He had a different one. We must be careful about how we go about interpreting Revelation. Ambrose Bierce, a late 19th century satire guy in his Devil's Dictionary defined Revelation like this. Revelation, a famous book in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by the commentators who know nothing. First time I read that, I loved it. And that should, you should just kind of hang that on the front of Revelation when you, when you start to read it, when you think you get it all figured out. Um, we as a church, too, have a, have a very um, loose view, uh, meaning um, different people have different opinions um, among the elders about the way the whole second coming is going to go down and how that might relate to Israel, how that might or might not relate to a rapture, how that might or might not to re- relate to literal marks or not on your hand or on your forehead. Um, you go down the list. Um, there's, there, there can be a lot of disagreement. And throughout church history, there's a lot of different disagreement or um, questions about this particular book of the Bible. Um, and what we need to remember mainly is that Jesus is coming again and that that book matters for us now and we should try to interpret it and we should try to understand it. We should try to read as much as we can but, but, but we should be very careful in structuring our whole way, way of life around our particular view of Revelation. And some churches really push Revelation. You can get people in the seats fast when you advertise how you're going to outline all the prophecy and draw 37 different charts and have cool connecting points to, to show how you've got it all figured out. And then you die and nobody cares because you were wrong. <laughs> um, because um, we should be mainly gospel people and mainly focused upon that and that he is coming again, but we really don't know exactly how that's all going to work and how that all relates to Israel or anything else. Um, but, there's, but there's several different interpretations. Usually there's five major approaches. There are the preterists that hold that Revelation describes events that would soon take place for John and for his first century readers. And that AD 70 issue was big for them um, because they believe that, that um, Babylon's destruction may refer to the judgment on apostate Israel when Rome was destroyed in, in Jerusalem. Or on Rome when the empire fell in the 5th century. Some preterists allow for future fulfillment of some texts in the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, the resurrection, and, and the new heavens and the new earth. So some allow for future stuff to happen. Some allow for basically most of Scripture to have already happened. Um, futurists typically interpret chapters 4 to 22 as referring to historical events in the distant future for John and the churches of Asia Minor, including a final crisis period followed by Jesus' return to establish his kingdom on earth, judge evil, and usher in the new creation. Not all futurists agree. You have dispensational futurists who interpret chapters 6 to 19 as a prophecy of a literal seven-year tribulation after the church's rapture. After the tribulation, God will fulfill his promises to bless Israel during a 1,000 year period that does not directly pertain to the church. Then you have historical premillennialists who espouse a modified or moderate futurist position and hold that the church will pass through the final tribulation and will share in Christ's future earthly realm during the millennium. Many futurist interpreters affirm key elements of preterism or idealism. Futurism is probably um, 
in conservative circles, one of the most popular ones um, because most um, evangelicals, at least it seems, usually adopt one of those um, particular views um, on, on dispensationalism or historical premillennialism and the way in which the rapture works and the church works and its fulfillment with Israel. One of the major problems with futurism, um, in my view, is pretty obvious because chapters 4 to 22 seems unlikely that that book would have come at that time if 4 to 22 is mainly only referring to stuff that they should have been concerned about 2,000 years later or 3,000 or 4,000. Um, I, I, I think it makes sense to have a little bit of caution on some of that um, because he was writing to particular churches then at that time facing those issues. And one thing that helps us is to say that all of that, that, that has something to say to us right now no matter what time we lived in. Revelation should speak to us now about the worship of God, about His coming, about the reality of final judgment, about not compromising and enduring to the end, no matter what's going on in the wicked system at hand, like we have right now. <laughs> but not nearly as wicked as some of the stuff that we've already been reading about. Well, actually, that, that could be... There's different levels of wickedness and areas of wickedness, um, but... We should have a little bit of perspective, is what I'm saying. And all of our freakouts about being persecuted um, is nothing in comparison to what some of them were facing than what we're facing right now in America. But there's clearly a little bit of a turn. Um, histori- um, man, I've rather say that. Um, historicis? How do you say that? Historicis. Thank you. They interpret um, 6.1 to 26 as a prophetic outline of major historical developments from John's day. Um, so basically you have things like Protestant interpreters connecting the Antichrist and Babylon to the Roman papacy. So basically the Catholic Church, the Pope. A few today follow this interpretation, though this approach has been common at other points in church history. Idealists, where Revelation is basically symbolic, depicting the ongoing conflict between the forces of God and of Satan throughout the church age. Idealists are reticent to identify John's symbols with particular past or future historical events. Though many idealists affirm that Jesus will return to establish his eternal kingdom in the new creation. And then there's eclecticism, which is basically mixing those views and they mix them in different ways. <laughs> um, depending on the particular um, commentator. But clearly, with an apocalyptic book, you are going to have symbols and you're going to have metaphors. So the challenge is, is how do you, do you take Revelation literally? Probably not. But certain things, probably yes. Um, but how does all that work? What about the 144,000? Is that speaking of just kind of wholeness? Or is that actually a literal 144,000 ethnic Jews? What about the measurements of the temple? Is that really saying this is exactly the way the size of the new Jerusalem is going to look? Well, then there's sure not a lot of people going to heaven. <laughs> because how do you fit all those people inside of that little tiny size? Um, you have... Um, just, just all different kinds of, of symbols and metaphors. And there is a, also a major link to the Old Testament. There's a lot of Ezekiel in Revelation and Isaiah. Um, and writing like the other New Testament writers write, where they're actually fleshing out um, and using some of, the, some of the old prophets in the way in which they are writing. So we need to understand in that more so maybe than we need to understand how it gears toward our particular point in history to, to interpret a a symbol. One of the things um, to be careful with um, in 
with certain views of Revelation is any view, no matter where you're at on the rapture, um, and whether there is a secret rapture of the saints or not. Um, you got to be very careful with, with the fact that Revelation is affirming the fact that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so he is affirming creation. And he's not having an idea of let it all burn and go to hell. Um, there's a sense of God bringing wholeness and restoring all that he has done back in Genesis. He's trying to restore and renew and bring peace to the whole cosmic reality where God will dwell in perfect peace and where the, and where, um, the bride will come down, the new Jerusalem will come down to earth and all will be restored and, and the curse will be completely lifted and gone. Um, as we dwell with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus is, is king. So we don't have to be too concerned about the kings of the earth. And that, that's what I want to leave you with in Revelation chapter 1, 4 to 8. We don't have to fear the kings of the earth. We don't have to be afraid of who gets elected or who doesn't get elected. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus is king. And imagine that reality in that culture when you're dealing with an emperor, when you're dealing with persecution, you're dealing with, with um, the temple being sacked and people being killed in horrific ways. And you read this in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, that's shocking. He rules them, and this is what's happening. <laughs> but the one who rules is the slain lamb who has, who's alive and new body, but still with the scars in his hand. And he is the one that rules. And thus the suffering of the churches, the suffering and evil in this world will be the case. But we follow the one who endured that, who died a horrific death, and who rose again and will bring that evil to justice. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we just thank you for this time. And um, I pray you'd help us to believe that. It's so easy to get just distracted the day to day. Our own sins, our own stuff, our own failures or worries, anxieties. Thankful for the book of Revelation and how you just kind of uncover what's happening in the heavenly realms. And that you would help us to see that and to believe that. To use our imagination as we read it. And the fact that those things are real. That that is real reality. Even more maybe than what we see right now. So we pray you would give us hope in King Jesus. And you would help us to trust him no matter what. In Jesus name. Amen. Two minutes for questions.
Nothing about the millennium or the rapture. That's a good question. I have, I have no idea, but I, but I think you're right that there are some who think that he, that he might have been married, or I know Peter had a wife, um, and I have no idea. And some of that's speculation, obviously, about how that would work. Any other thoughts or questions? No. All right. Good. Well, there we go. Hopefully that's helpful.